about history from a whole new context. Welcome to Podtextualizing the Past. I'm Sue Stanfield with the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. The process of industrialization and the creation of factories and mills are important to understanding the 19th century United States. While not the first, the Lowell Mills were central for a variety of reasons, including their use of female labor. Today we're going to speak with Dr. Bridget Marshall, um, English professor at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell, and um, hopefully we can learn a little bit more about the role of women in, in the mills. Thanks for being Thanks here. Thanks for having me. All right. So I guess to begin with, maybe a little before Lowell, is when, when do factories start being established in the United States? Sure. Um, well, we do just want to acknowledge there's a British Industrial Revolution before it comes to America, and that's an important context to have. Um, it depends a little bit on what you mean by factories. I mean, people are making making things, and they're making things in organized ways, like in groups of families and groups of people, and in particular in the textile industry. So I'll mostly be talking about textiles. There's certainly other industries that are important, but mostly textiles and mostly cotton, because cotton was really the big driver of economic development for lots of reasons we'll talk about. Um, but there's um, some early mills, early organized labor that's happening. Um, George Washington actually comes uh, in 1789 to Massachusetts. He's in Beverly, Massachusetts, and sees one of the earliest cotton mills. And uh, Alexander Hamilton in 1791 is actually writing about how we should have more manufacturing here. always like to drop in Hamilton references because he's, you know, he's very popular these days. <laughs> um, uh, but And he actually notes even this early uh, that they were uh, the mills were quote attended chiefly by women and children and persons who would otherwise be idle in many cases a burden on the community so i think it's uh, <laughs> framed as look this is excess labor we have lying around here these people should make themselves useful and then a factory allowed that to happen which i think it's interesting <laughs> yeah so like the first ones, um, the early ones, like in the Slater Mills, those are kind of a yes. family situation. Absolutely. So they're bringing whole families. So Samuel Slater, you, you mentioned, so he comes over from England, actually, illegally, because he had worked in one of the Arkwright Mills uh, in England. And it was illegal to for him as a textile worker to leave because he had a lot of knowledge and know-how. But he, so he gets, like, disguises himself and comes over and uh, joins up with a few other investors here and becomes becomes what some people call the father of the American Industrial Revolution and starts Slater Mill. And you're right, it's on the family system. So they would hire an entire family that would move, live in a little village that was typically paid for in part or largely subsidized by uh, the factory operation. And they would have, you know, the dad would often be doing something mechanical, the women would be in the weave room, and the children would be doing things on the on the factory floor as well. So uh, that's the family system, which we see uh, for Samuel Slater. And he's in Rhode Island uh, on the, in the Blackstone River Valley. So when do um, mills or factories, when do they come, come to Lowell? Yeah, so um, Slater is doing really well. Um, his partner in 1810 says that our people have cotton mill fever. Uh, and he didn't mean that people were getting sick, although to be clear, some people were getting sick. <laughs> That's important. What he meant was it was just so popular. Um, so there's a lot of money being poured into mill operations. And uh, the guy who decides this is a good deal is uh, Francis Cabot Lowell. Uh, he gets together a group of investors uh, and they put up their first mill in Waltham, Massachusetts, actually in 1812. 
And the big innovation that they start with is um, it's basically vertical integration. So they bring raw cotton in on one side of the mill at the very beginning. It goes through all of the cleaning, the spinning, the weaving, and you have completed cloth coming out at the end. Uh, under previous systems, it was usually under an outwork system. So you might have a spinning mill where you would spin cotton, but then you would have to sell or trade with someone to have your uh, threads made into cloth. Right. But this was integrating everything and it was hugely successful in Waltham. So they decide, hey, we're going to put some more money together and they get a lot of money together and they secretly start buying up land in what was Chelmsford at the time, uh, all along the Merrimack River where there's uh, falls, Merrimack and Concord, actually. And in 1826, they incorporate Lowell and it is entirely an industrial city. It had been you know, a river and farmland previous to that. And they go to work and very quickly build up multiple mills in the town and and they very quickly need workers. And so in addition to having this vertical integration of all of the steps of cotton cloth manufacturing from, like I said, raw cotton, raw, unclean cotton to a finished product that you can sell uh, to a consumer, they, uh, in addition to, sorry, the, to the vertical integration, they need a new workforce uh, because they're simply, the family system isn't going to work. It's not going to provide enough labor. There aren't enough families available to move there. Um, so they decide, uh, they narrow down and realize that there are a lot of young women in the farms uh, nearby. And that's sort of the major innovation that they have is a, is a workforce innovation in addition to the means of production that they change. Okay. So they make a switch to to primarily female labor, but fairly early in the process? Is yes. That... And partly that's because uh, in England, in Manchester, for instance, in particular, there's a really bad reputation for industrial cities. They are seen as dirty uh, places where there are loose morals, where the workers are treated badly and behave badly. And so if they're going to set up a, a factory town or a factory city, they know that it needs to have a good reputation if they're going to keep people coming, if they're going to keep workers coming. So they decide to have young women come and they set up boarding houses. So company owned boarding houses. So for instance, if you work for the Hamilton Mills in Lowell, you have to live in the Hamilton Mills boarding house. And they realized that this would be easier to do with all women. We should also note that it's no small thing that they would not have to pay women as much as men. Right. So it's also uh, a cost-saving measure. Their choice is not simply altruistic. Um, but it was dealing with the realities of, of uh, what they faced right there with the, with the labor force. Um, so having these boarding houses helped them to market to women that they would be safe as well as to their families. So if you're a parent of a teenage daughter and you want to know that she's going to be safe, you want to send her off to earn money, you don't want to send her to some really scary city. So you send her to Lowell, you know that she'll be in this factory owned boarding house that will have a, a woman overseer who's like a new mother figure to her um, and that she'll be protected in this uh, very specific way. Well, there seems like there's that moment for young women that aren't upper class, you know, so they finish their education, but not yet ready for marriage and things. And so in some ways, it seems like this was a, a good answer to a, to a problem as well. Um, so can you tell us a little bit like what, what would a woman's life look like, um, a laborer in the mill, like just her everyday life? Yeah, sure. So she's working a lot. We don't want to underestimate that. Um, they're not fighting for an eight hour day. They're fighting at some point for a 10 hour day. So they're typically working 12 and sometimes 14 hours a day um, year round. However, there are some seasonal changes. So for instance, 
they're going to work longer hours on longer, sunnier days because then they don't have to pay as much money to light up the mills. They, they, they can light the mills, but it's cheaper, obviously. Um, but they're also relying on water power in Lowell. And so there are seasonal changes in the river. So sometimes if the river's running dry or running lower, they don't have enough power to power as many mills. So some seasonal changes happen. Actually, sometimes in the winter, things would freeze up and then they couldn't run the mills. We see some, some news about that. So, but in general, they're working very long days. They're also working six days a week. So uh, typically it was a half day on Saturdays, but still it's a lot of hours at work. Um, they're assigned to individual mills. By and large, they work on a floor with lots of other women, but they're kind of isolated from the women. We, we see them say in their letters that they feel confined and that they feel alone. They can't talk much at work. I mean, even though they're all on this factory floor, partly because it's really loud. If you ever uh, have a chance to tour any of the mills, it's really, really loud, um, which also gets us to some of the health hazards that there were for them. One of them is to their hearing. They're also standing for very, very long periods of time. So they have a lot of problems with legs and back. Um, and there's also a lot of dangers with the machinery. Uh, you see accidents um, with women's hair or dresses being caught in machinery, some ter terrible, gruesome things. Um, so th there's certainly a lot of dangers in this workplace as well. Um, at the same time, we see little insights about them having some lovely connections with their friends, that they're sometimes singing together and, and songs together in between their, their work. And the other thing that we really see is this mill girl culture that comes out um, where they're reading and writing uh, outside of the mills and publishing. Uh, they have a journal called The Lowell Offering. So from 1840 to 1845, uh, it's the first journal publication entirely written and edited by working women. Um, and it's it's hugely important. It becomes very famous. Uh, Charles Dickens reads it and promotes it. Uh, a version of it gets sort of condensed and published as a mind amongst the spindles in England. It becomes very popular. So they're, they are doing other things, which I think is surprising to me when I realized how much how many hours they were spending at the factory, but they still managed to have these incredibly rich lives. So um, you talk about injuries. Is there, are they compensated or do you just get booted out of the mill and you're, you're doomed? I know that you know, we certainly don't have OSHA back then. Right. So interestingly, Lowell has a corporation hospital. It was a, actually a really big deal that they had this. Um, in England, you were typically out on the street, as you suggested. And in many other towns, you would be. You might receive some manner of compensation, but it was largely if your mill owner was benevolent or your overseer thought you were worth it. In England, actually, in particular, we see a lot of examples where they blame the workers for things, where they say, oh, there's a there was an article that said uh, a young woman's disheveled hair was caught in the machinery. And it's clearly suggesting that if her hair hadn't been so messy, it wouldn't have, you know, this wouldn't have happened. Right. Um, in Lowell, it's not to say that it's perfect, but we do see, uh, it, what see what appears, at least in the earlier times, to be a higher level of accountability because they have this, this little hospital, corporation-owned hospital where they're sending their workers. And partly that's because they want to maintain this, this public persona of being a very uh, safe place for their workers to be. Um, we do see that sometimes the girls are putting together relief efforts for each other. So they're... Um, pooling money, for instance, to help someone who's sick or help someone who uh, is out of work for a little while, which is a, a sort of a, a lovely thing to see. But nonetheless, we see workers struggling. So there's a young woman named Barilla Taylor who comes here from Roxbury, Maine, and she um, 
and she's 17 when she arrives and she gets very, pretty sick. She, she arrives at 16 and uh, within two years, she's very, very ill and she's looking for help. She, we have a set of her letters actually that her family saved and we can see that she wants her family to come. She can't go to them. So she wants her mother to come and her family doesn't have the money to send her mother. And so they send money to get uh, someone to nurse her at home. Um, but unfortunately, actually, Burla dies before they're able to get that in place. And uh, they have to raise money at this point then for her gravestone. So it's these, these sorts of stories that we see occasionally through these letters, where many of them are really struggling fin- financially, for sure. So how are the you know young women perceived that work in the in the factories? Because, you know, there are certain gender norms at the time um, that are prescribed, not necessarily followed. Um, but... I'm kind of curious, how do they fit within class status and and gender norms? This is a great question, and it's really complicated. Um, The Lowell offering, for one example, written by the Mill Girls, they're definitely trying to frame themselves as well-educated and well-treated. Everything that they write about is really pretty positive about the mills. Um, and they want to emphasize that they are young professional women. They are doing this for a time to earn money. Um, and they're really, it's a, you know, a request for, to, res- to respect them for what they're doing. They highlight the fact that they are in some cases paying off the mortgages for their family's farms. Um, sometimes they're paying for their uh, brothers to go to college because there aren't really options for the women. So they're sending brothers or, or, uh, or other male relatives to college, so that they're doing these, doing this work for uh, very noble reasons, right? It's not just about themselves. At the same time, though, pop culture, popular culture, and a lot of the culture is really pushing that these girls are selfish and boy crazy and really into fashion. So you see a lot of critiques that talk about the mill girls are going shopping, they're spending their money on dresses and jewelry and hats and frippery. Um, so we see a lot of critiques of that. Um, Sarah Joseph Hale uh, is outraged uh, when she claims that she saw a mill girl wearing a gold watch. And she specifically makes this claim that mill girls are wearing gold watches in, in imitation of our finest citizens. So it's really loaded with not only is she spending money on something she shouldn't, but she's spending money on something she oughtn't have access to, right? That, that, that she's moving, making it look like she's of a higher class than, than we, quotation marks, believe she is. So there's a lot of debate happening about um, what the mill girls are doing. And the other thing that we see is a lot of very, very anxious writing about the mill girls' sexuality. So you'll see, um, well, one example would be Herman Melville's uh, The Paradise of Bachelors and the Tartarus of Maids, where he, and it's paper mill, but he depicts the women working in a paper mill as just these blank, uh, lifeless, they have, uh, they will never marry, that they were, that they're essentially killing themselves and becoming unsexed and unwomanly. Uh, so that's this one popular version. But the other, I'd say probably more popular version, is the Mill Girls Gone Wild, as I like to call it, where these girls, they are away from home. They're with other girls who are bad influences, and they are just out there. They're dressing themselves up fancy, and that signals that they are sexually available to men. And so there are so many trashy novels at this time that are supposedly revealing. There's this wonderfully trashy one called The Confessions of the G. FK Club. And it's this novel set in Lowell 
which claims that there's this group of men who are specifically like choosing factory girls who they are going to ruin and that they get together and have meetings about which factory girl they're going to ruin next. So uh, there's a Mysteries of Lowell. There's a whole series of books about lots of different mill towns that are claiming that these girls are just either sexually promiscuous or they're about to be sexually victimized by upper class men who are out to get them. So now that you you say this, it makes me wonder, um, were they treated more kindly in the Lowell press because they need that labor force? Or did the people of Lowell feel like, you know, they could be victimized by having these wild women, you know, unsupervised young young women in their town? How did the, the townspeople react? Yeah. That's a great question because really Lowell kind of only exists because of the mills. There wasn't a town here that then was taken over. It was empty farmland where it built up. So Lowell definitely tries to promote its factory girls and Lowell as this sort of utopian society in some ways. So there are lots and lots of defenses of the mill girl, both coming from the Lowell offering. So the girls writing, Um, there are newspapers. The voice of industry is very much trying to frame these young women as valuable, important, and very moral and upstanding. Um, And certainly quite a lot of people in Lowell are coming to the defense of the mill girls at the same time that a lot of the fiction is claiming that it's all sordid and naughty. So I don't know if anyone's done a study of this, but but what happens when the the mill girls quit working and, and go home? Do they find husbands? Do they become teachers and, and become more independent women? What what becomes of them? Yeah, well, we know that the vast majority of women while they're working in Lowell are unmarried, and very few of them marry while they're working. However, it does seem from what we are able to track, as you said, we can't track all of them. Most of them did return home and marry. Some of them do go on to school teaching. You're absolutely right. That's one of one of the pathways that's open to them. Um, or just returning to their farm and returning to their home where uh, there's certainly labor to be done at home. I always like to stress that it's not like they were sitting at home eating bonbons and doing nothing right. when they lived on the farm. They were working hard many hours then too. Um, So yeah, they uh, largely are returning back. Many of them, for for many of the early generation of mill girls, this was a temporary phase of life. They would come for nine months and then go home for several months, maybe come back or maybe not. In general, the, the proprietors of Lowell and the mill girls themselves did not see this as a permanent professional thing that they were going to do for their lives. In the same way that today we might say, oh, this is a career that I'm choosing. It was a temporary thing that they used to earn money and to get out of their home and meet other people. Um, perhaps find a match in Lowell. Maybe they were going, again, it's overwhelmingly female in Lowell, so it might be a little hard to find a gentleman. Um, But it's a temporary phase of life. And that was a really important uh, idea for the first generation of Lowell Mill Girls. So it'd be like a, a 19th century gap year, kind of. Yeah. I actually was meeting with a group of college students earlier this week, and I sort of drew up a list of, there's a lot of ways in which it seems really similar to going to college. So they're all coming from different towns. They're coming together. They're living in a dormitory kind of situation. Mm -hmm. They're working together. um, And they form these really wonderful friendships. We have these great letters from them where they talk about their friends that they miss from back home, but they're also talking about their friends, the, the friendships that have developed in Lowell. The other thing that's happening is they're moving among different mills. So there's 12, 14 different mills within Lowell, but then Nashua, uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, a ton of local cities. So they're moving from different mills, sometimes for better money, but sometimes because their cousin works there or a sister or a friend that they made at a different mill. So there's an interesting amount of mobility that kind of surprised me when I looked into it a little deeper. So you mentioned um, 
but they work long hours. You know, they mm-hmm. have to live in a dorm. Um, did they, did they, do they organize? Like, are there, do they fight in an organized manner to, to change their working environments? You know, are these like early, you know, facsimiles of a union or, or do they just kind of go on? They're absolutely organized. And in fact, some people have argued that the existence of the boarding houses was part of what enabled that. So some historians have looked at the boarding houses as this um, instrument of social control, right? So your your uh, boss knows where you are during working hours, and he also knows exactly where you are during your non-working hours, which seems like really intense surveillance. But some would argue that the fact that they were together with their co-workers, that they were talking about work, that's what one of the things that they did, and that they built these strong relationships, and that in some ways that might have contributed to some of the activism that happened. So yes, they did organize against their uh, working conditions. Uh, in particular, there are walkouts that they have in 1836, uh, 34 and 36. Um, we see that they uh, are upset about the mill owners. They didn't cut the wages first. What they did is they raised the cost of boarding, which was effectively a cut to wages um, because of their, their, uh, their room and board, which again, if you lived, if you worked at the Hamilton Mills, you had to live at the Hamilton Mills boarding house. So if you have raised the price of your board, you effectively have cut the weight and not if you're not raising the wages. Um, the other sneaky things that they would do sometimes would be to increase the speed of the, that the uh, machines were working at. So on your shift, if you were supposed to be working at a machine that was at a pretty steady pace, they would increase the pace of that machine. So effectively getting more work out of you, even though you were only there for the same number of hours. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they would make you um, watch twice the number of machines. So if you were normally in charge of two looms, they would rearrange things so that you're actually now responsible for four different looms, which uh, again, increases the amount of work and again, increases the danger that you're placed at, right? If all these things are moving and you're responsible for them and uh, well, you can imagine how it makes it more dangerous for you. So they definitely uh, complained about this publicly uh, and it had two walkouts. Unfortunately, they weren't terribly effective other than at least we see that they were trying to, to do something about what they saw as really unfair changes in their labor. So when does it change? Um, you know, it starts out, it seems to be largely white, young, single, rural women that come in. Um, when does this process change? So as labor conditions become more difficult, so they're working harder, right? They're getting the wage, wages are cut. Um, in Through the 1840s, things seem to be getting worse. So I feel like the 1830s are like this golden age, if you will, although there are still strikes then. But the conditions are worsening. And at the same time, globally, various pressures in all sorts of different countries bring about a lot of immigration to the, to the United States. And all of those immigrant groups are a huge population. Many of them come to Lowell and many of and find work there. So there's a real transition that by 1850, those New England farm girls are no longer coming to Lowell because all the positions are being filled uh, by a variety of different immigrant groups that are coming in. Because these immigrant groups are coming in with their entire families there, they don't have a farm they can go back to. So if a mill girl is unhappy with the conditions of her labor, she can go home to her family. I mean, there's still an economic cost, but she has a place to go. But once you have an entire immigrant family that's come and settled in Lowell, they don't have a lot of options to walk away from the 
what become increasingly bad uh, conditions of labor, whether it's speed or danger or low wages. Um, so we see a real transition, I would say, by around 1850. And, that, and from then on, it's very much uh, an immigrant city and immigrant labor largely dominates in the mills. Are there vestiges of that today? I mean, when you look Absolutely. at Lowell. Lowell's a really great city with lots and lots of different immigrant groups. And we see, you can kind of date them from different times. This is a little bit dark, but I like walking in some of the older Lowell cemeteries. And you can see at different time periods, the different clusters of names from different areas that start to uh, come. There's a huge Irish population. So there's a there's an Irish churches. The other place where you can see it is in the churches uh, that, that uh, we have a, a Greek Orthodox church and an Irish Catholic church and a Portuguese. So you see these different um, sort of waves of immigration from different areas as these communities grow in Lowell, which I think is absolutely its strength, uh, one of its strengths now. So these are textile mills. So presumably uh, working with cotton and that comes from slave labor. And this is in the antebellum era before the, the civil war. So I'm kind of curious, was this a, um, did this create political or economic issues? Did, you know, did people target these mills as a, a point of criticism? You know, did, did the workers feel bad about it? Did, how did this, this work out? Yeah, so slavery is a hugely important aspect uh, of any discussion of Lowell or the textile industry. The central thing being that enslaved people are harvesting the cotton that's being spun and that the North is making money off of. Um, but there's, I like to think about three different ways that slavery intersects um, that we don't, so beyond just the cotton itself is being picked and that's exploitation, uh, it's stolen labor, knowledge and skills from enslaved people. But in addition, a lot of the startup money that allowed the mills to exist in the first place came from the transatlantic slave trade. So both in England and America, the reason people had money to invest was because they had profits from the slave trade. So that's an underlying piece of it. And then the third piece, which I hadn't really realized till I started to look into it, was that, for instance, here in Lowell, a lot of the cloth that they made was a very cheap kind of cloth that they specifically made and sold back to southern plantations in order to clothe the enslaved people. And they marketed it that way. There's actually interviews with uh, enslaved people who refer to their clothes as Lowell's. They had, uh, so there's Kendall Whites, which were, um, I'm sorry, not Kendall, but Kendall and another kind of plaid that was uh, made in England in a particular area. But then there's Lowell's, and that's a particular cloth made in Lowell specifically for this market. So the continued profits uh, come about because of slavery. Um, there's a lot of abolitionist uh, sentiment, though, in the North, obviously. Um, and some of that is definitely in Lowell. We see uh, critiques. Uh, Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner talked about the, quote, lords of the lash and the lords of the loom. And he put those two together, that there's this class of slave owners and there's this class of factory owners and that those two are deeply aligned. Um, and uh, certainly from the uh, from the manufacturer side, from the owner's side, um, Slavery makes their business possible and profitable. So there wasn't a lot of activism uh, amongst the uh, owners, shall we say. But there's definitely activism. We see it in the newspapers that there's a lot of abolitionist sentiment uh, within among mill girls. Uh, one of the terms that you see sometimes that's a little bit problematic, but um, mill girls are referred to as white slaves. And I'm putting that in big scare quotes here, which you can see in person, but not over audio, I recognize. <laughs> um, 
And the girls object to this, actually. Um, there's a couple of editorials where they say to call us white slaves doesn't recognize the privilege that we have, basically, but also fails to recognize the true conditions of enslavement and what slave labor really means. So it becomes a very common trope to refer to factory workers as white slaves, both in England and here. Um, but we have some examples of Lowell's girls, Lowell's Mill girls in particular, really objecting to that term and, and finding that it's uh, not something that they want to consider themselves. So um, as we kind of bring this to a, a conclusion, one of the things that I always ask everyone I interview <laughs> is uh, to imagine Instagram or Twitter existed um, in the 1830s, in the 1840s, and to kind of think about in a 21st century way, how would people identify themselves? What hashtags might they use? So I was wondering a typical mill girl, what, what might she have used on her account? I love this question. So I was thinking about a lot of the writing that the Mill Girls did, and they write a lot about nature, um, that they miss uh, being out, you know, seeing nature, and they contrast it with sort of living in the city. So I imagine a lot of nature photography, you know, be a beautiful outdoor setting with various like nature hashtags. Um, it's true that although it was a criticism, it's true that clearly a lot of them were shopping and wearing clothes. So I think you'd see a lot of those style hashtags about fashion and images that they would, I imagine many of them would be promoting their latest looks, you know, the latest things that they had bought at the shops downtown. Like that, that is definitely a piece of their um, culture. Right now, I guess the hashtag that's going around is challenge accepted, which is women tagging other women and you post a, a black and white photo of yourself. I think they would totally go in for this and in part because there's so many women, right? They're working all day and living in all their private lives with a whole big group of women. So I definitely imagine them jumping on that, uh, that hashtag and sharing their pictures of themselves. And I also think that when the Me Too hashtag became uh, a thing, I, I think many of them, I don't know, but uh, it seems that many of them would have had reason to participate in that hashtag as well. Uh, sometimes we get, get a little bit of insight. We don't have a lot of detail about this because it's not something they wrote about very much, but um, there were certainly moments where in their work they were harassed, I would imagine sexually harassed as well. And uh, I think that that would have been a relevant hashtag for some of them too. I hadn't really even thought about that and shame on me. I mean, you know, given a vulnerable population with, uh, you know, large number of women with males in power, it's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, um, it's kind of a ready-made situation there. Um, how about a mill owner? What might they have said? <laughs> well, I always like to point out that the owners of the Lowell Mills did not live in Lowell. So the overseers and the managers did, but the people who actually own them are, are out in Boston. So I like to think of them just being in a whole other world. So when you think about, you know, your, your one percenters who are off on their yachts or, you know, <laughs> upset because they have to go to their second house instead of their, or their third house, you know, out in the, uh, in some elite enclave, I imagine that they would, they would be posting hashtags of their, of their lovely palatial estates and the fun things that they're doing, um, kind of oblivious to what's actually happening, uh, for their workers here in the world. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. I am so happy to finally be able to include, um, in more than just a, a mention in a lecture, but to be able to spend some real time thinking about both the idea of mills and a changing labor force, but also how this pertains to women. So I appreciate your time. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Would you, would you like just one little tidbit? 
Oh, definitely. Can I fit that in? So I am a big fan of their letter. So I feel like whenever I can get their language in, I like to share that and, and to make them relatable because they lived a long time ago. But I think there's a lot you can relate to. So one of the favorite letters that I've found is from Abigail Lovering, and she's 21 years old. So I also think maybe some of your students might be able to relate. Um, she is in Lowell working and she's writing home to fit friends and family. She's kind of writing a, gr- a letter to a group of people at home. And this is in uh, April of 1834. And she writes... Respected friends, as I cannot have the privilege of seeing and conversing with you as I could wish, I devote a few moments to inform that I am well and hope these few illiterate lines will find you the same. I am 21 years old today. I want to come into your house and eat a whole cheese and drink a gallon of cider and smoke a week and tell up some of my great stories. I just love that so much. She misses her friends. She wants to get together. I mean, I feel this way right now during the pandemic. What would I give to go to someone's house and get together with them right yeah. now? Yeah, <laughs> eat gallons, you know, a big cheese and gallons of cider. Yeah. <laughs> Delightful. <laughs> it sounds so great. So that's the first part of it. And then she gives a little bit of news. And then she ends by saying, uh, I keep yet with Hulda, clearly one of her friends. We are as good of friends as ever. There is everything in Lowell that anybody could ever wish for, even red ribbons of all colors and dippers of all sizes. And she signs it, your friend Abigail Lovering. And so I love the wistfulness of missing her friends, but at the same time being really in awe of Lowell and and overwhelmed in the idea that dippers of all sizes is like the most exciting thing that she can um, imagine being in in this uh, new city. So I am very charmed by Abigail Lovering, uh, who wrote on her 21st birthday to her friends from Lowell. I I love that. And I'm always so happy when I can find examples of people speaking for themselves. When when you have their their words through letters, you just get a different get, get a different feel for people. Um, and so thanks for sharing that. I'm glad I got it in. Thanks for having me. Podtextualizing the past was created by Susan Stanfield, assistant professor of history at the University of Texas at El Paso, and is produced by Adrian Mesa from UTEP's Creative Studios.